Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. Well, good morning. As many of you know, I'm Pastor Tim from New Paltz, and I just want to start by saying that I, I'm going to extend a standing invitation to Maria anytime she wants to come and sing in New Paltz. <clears throat> that was beautiful. So we're going to be doing something interesting this morning. As you're looking up at this screen, I'm, I'm guessing that you're thinking, that looks familiar, but there's something different. Looks a lot like our Not So Minor Prophets series, but it's a little bit different. It's a not-so-minor history. We're taking a little bit of a detour, a three-week detour, because we want to think about the context into which the prophets are speaking. So I know that some of you are thinking, history? Really? Most of us kind of have mixed feelings, not-so-great feelings about history. I have an early memory of history, and it's less than good. I was in the seventh grade. And I remember my history class. We used to call it social studies class. I remember my history class. Now, I don't remember the teacher's name, and I definitely don't remember what she taught. Here's what I do remember, though. I remember that we were required to walk into the classroom every day in silence, sit at our desk, take out our notebook, and begin to copy down all the notes that she had across both chalkboards that covered the entire front of the room. And then there were two more chalkboards that went from the door to the back wall. Those two were completely filled. There was no space on those boards. We had to go in and begin to take notes from the, this board all the way across. And about eight or 10 minutes into the class, what she would do is she'd walk up to the first board and she'd erase it. So you knew, I got to get it done quickly. But she wasn't done there. After she erased it, she'd write more notes on that first board, and then a few minutes later erase the next board, and write some notes on that board, and so on and so forth. And so you spent the whole 40 plus minutes of the class taking notes. She never taught. She never instilled a love for history in me at all. Really what it was was not a history class. It was a lesson in penmanship as I frantically wrote the notes that I couldn't read because I was writing them so fast. Not exactly the best early memory to instill a love of history. Many of us struggle with history. We look at it and we're like, eh, I could take history or leave it. We all know it's kind of important, and of course it is. I, I found this interesting little essay uh, written back in 1998, creatively titled, Why Study History? by a man named Peter Stearns. And he gives two general reasons, which we kind of get. The first one is this. History helps us to understand people and societies. Sure, I get that. He gets a little bit more specific when he says, well, history helps us to understand change and how the society that we live in came to be. Get that too. But then he offers two much more personal reasons. The first one is this. History helps to contribute to our moral understanding. When we study history, we understand some of the moral dilemmas that, that cultures and societies faced in the past and how they dealt with them. So it gives us an insight into our own moral understanding. And secondly, history provides our identity. It helps to shape some of our identity. To understand our history is to understand some of our identity. We understand this to be true in terms of our own personal history. We understand it to be true in terms of our family history, our national history. 
which should also mean that we should definitely understand it in terms of our spiritual heritage and our spiritual history. So as I said, we're, we're, we're taking this detour in our Not So Minor Prophets series. We're taking this three-week detour called a Not So Minor History. And, and we do it because history is important. We do it because we want to get a sense of the context into which the prophets were speaking. Let me give you a famous quote that kind of helps us to get a sense of the value and importance of history. Most of you have heard this quote before. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And how many, show of hands, how many have heard that? It's common, right? Everybody knows that quote. But it's still a good quote because it captures something really important. If you forget the past, you are going to repeat it. You're going to make the same mistakes over and over and over again. Think about it this way. If you were to think about your past in terms of the struggles you might have, let's say your struggles with your sin or something like that, what would you do? You might consider some of the patterns that you fall into. You might consider some of the coping mechanisms that you employ. You'd look at your track record or your go-tos, which is what? You're looking at your history and you're considering that history. That's all good. But as Christians, we want to do something much more specific than just that. That's really good. We want to think about our histories. But here's what I want you to focus on. We want to think about what it is that we're charged to remember about who God is and what he teaches us in his word. Or to put it differently, we want to be charged to not forget God. Now, that sounds like an obvious thing. But one of the things that we want to recognize when we look at the context of the prophets is that the prophets were endeavoring to do exactly that. They were trying to remind Israel. They were trying to remind her of what she had forgotten about God. They wanted Israel to look at her history, her track record, and to learn from it. In fact, we've already seen this in the early part of our series in the Minor Prophets. Let me just give you a little bit of a taste of it from Hosea. We read this in chapter 4, verse 1 of Hosea. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy, which is to say the Lord has a a dispute, a charge that he wants to level against his people, and it comes in in a threefold form. There's no faithfulness, there's no steadfast love, and there's no knowledge of God. That's the forgotten part. No knowledge of God. Just a couple verses later, we read this in verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of God, I will forget your children. If we were to go back just a little bit further into Hosea, into chapter 2, we read these words. And before I say them, just remember, this is the context of Hosea as really as a figure of God, marrying Gomer as an unfaithful representative of us, of God's people, of us. And this is Gomer. She, Gomer the unfaithful people of God, burnt offerings to them, the other gods, and adorned herself with ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and did what? Forgot me, declares the Lord. One last one from chapter 8 of Hosea. Simply put, Israel has forgotten his maker. And so with all of that, you kind of get the importance here of the mission of the prophets. They're charged to remember that Israel remembers her past. To not forget. But if I could give you something a little bit more poignant, more specific for us as Christians, I'd like to give you this quote from an author named Henry Nowen and the importance of remembering our past. He writes this, to forget our sins may be an even greater sin than to commit them. Why? 
Because what is forgotten cannot be healed, and that which cannot be healed easily becomes the cause of greater evil. That's worth reading twice, so I'm going to read it twice for you. To forget our sins may be an even greater sin than committing them, because what is forgotten cannot be healed, and that which cannot be healed easily becomes the cause of greater evil. Israel certainly had a long, long track record of forgetting her past, which had proven time and time again to not only get her in trouble, the same trouble, I should say, but also producing continuous and even more sin. It perpetuates the cycle of sin and evil. And of course we would say, yeah, but that's then, that's a different world and the list of differences between the, the people of God in the ancient Near East and the people of God in the modern day West is long and extensive. There's one thing that's identical and that's that we have a sin nature. And that sin nature, among other things, causes us to forget and to neglect our past which condemns us to repeat it, to perpetuate the sins in our lives. If I could put this yet one more way, I would say this. It is primary within the constructs of biblical wisdom to remember God. To remember his commandments, his precepts, to remember his word, to remember his blessings, to remember his warnings. To fear him, which of course is the beginning of wisdom. So we have this first part installment in our series of a not-so-minor history. We're going to look at Israel torn, the nation torn in two. Then we'll look at Israel in exile. And then we'll look at Israel returned in the, in the weeks to coming, Lord willing, from uh, Pastor, Pastor Ken and, and uh, Elder Dave. This morning, we're going to be looking at Israel torn. And that means that we want to consider who Israel is, how she became a nation, the intent of God to make her a nation, and then how she becomes a nation torn. Which means I get to give you guys a history lesson. Woo! There you go. There you are. I know you're excited. I'm going to fill all the boards up, and you guys have to take all your notes in silence. Here we go. So here it is. We want to look at creation, a fall, and from what, what might be described as a disjointed group of tribes to a unified nation. And what I want you to see is this is God's intent all along. It's his intent all along. Even from the garden, and I want you to notice something here. Right from the very beginning, God creates the garden. It's good. There's no sin, but Adam and Eve choose to sin. And what happens in the garden? They're kicked out. Or as you can see here, they're exiled. So if you want to think about the context of the prophets, the context of the prophets is exile. We have what we call pre-exilic prophets that are before the exile. We have exilic prophets and post-exilic prophets. They're speaking to Israel in the context of exile, warning of its coming, speaking to me in the context of it, or looking back at it so that they do not repeat the same sins again. And so exile is the context of the prophets, but it's not new. It's not brand new, even from the very beginning, Exile is part of the history of God's people, sadly. So you have the garden. It goes downhill from there, as you know. As you read in the opening chapters of Genesis, the fall, fallen world declines into worse and worse chaos and worse and worse sin, which leads to the flood. And after the flood, God does something really important. He reinstates the creation mandate. 
It's the second time we hear be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. It's the new creation or recreation. It's a very significant uh, portion of scripture. But for our purposes here, it's given to Noah, but it takes us to Abram. We get, a, we get a genealogy after Noah, and that takes us to Abram or Abraham. And here's the thing about Abraham. Abraham is an interesting guy for a number of reasons. One of them is that Abraham gets a name change. Right? Now, there's people in the Bible that get name changes. He's not the only one. But name changes are significant. They matter. And, and we know Abram, we, we, we were introduced to him in chapter 11 in the genealogy, and then we get these words in chapter 12. Oops, oops, hold on. And we kind of know these verses, they're pretty well known. If you don't know them, here they are. Here's what we read. Now the Lord said to Abram, so notice his name is not Abraham yet, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. What's, plan, what's God's plan for the nation of Israel? All the way back to Abram. That's God's plan for his nation right from the beginning. There's intent. God plans with Abram to make a great nation of him. I'll bless you and make your name great, which by the way is kind of an interesting thing because when you look at the Tower of Babel that happened right before that, the kings of the world, they were endeavoring to build that tower so that they could make their name great. That didn't end so well for them. But God says to Abraham right afterwards, I am going to make your name great. I'll make you a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I'll curse, and in all the families of the earth you shall be blessed. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But the point that I want you to see is he makes a great nation of him. So as we follow Abraham, who's still Abram, in chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abram. It's a really big part of the Bible. It's really important. There's a ritual that happens there. They cut the animals in half. It, it's a, the ritual of, of covenant happens. And it's of great significance throughout Scripture, the Abrahamic covenant. But he also tells them, it's not going to go well for your people. They're going to be in bondage and slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And then in chapter 17, God says, the covenant I made with you, I'm going to give you a sign of circumcision, but here, the sign of circumcision is the sign of the covenant. But here's what God says at the beginning of it. I want you to notice this. Here's our thought line here. Follow this. Abraham was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. There's the nation theme again, only now it's a multitude of nations. No longer shall you be, your name be called Abram. Here's the name change, but your name shall be Abraham. For I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. Uh, that's kind of an interesting little thing in the Hebrew language. The, the ham on the end of Abram is a, is a Hebrew suffix, which makes it plural. So they're just pluralizing his name. He is the father of many I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So I think this is actually really interesting. It's kind of cool what God's doing here. He's going to make a nation of Abraham. In fact, we see here nations is plural. That is to say that God will establish his nation over the nations. And then we get this, and kings will come from him. And that's really important for our purposes here because it's Israel's kings that sin, having forgotten God, and caused the division of the nation. 
Dave said it just a bit ago, right? When leaders trust in Christ, good things happen. When they don't, not so good things. So that's an important point, right? God is going to be the, uh, Abraham is going to be uh, the father of a multitude of nations and kings will come from it. But we also have to go back. We're tracing the line of history. We have to remember they were told that they were going to be in bondage to Egypt. So Abraham tells them they're going to be enslaved for 400 years. You can read about that in Genesis 15. God delivers his people out of slavery. That's the first half of the book of Exodus. We know that story. That's with the plagues and, and, and God delivering his people. And then what happens? They wander rather sinfully in the wilderness for 40 years, grumbling and griping, not really doing it well. Um, and then what happens? God makes a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, and he brings them into the promised land. Now, let's just pause here for a moment. Let's just think about what's happened. God delivers his people. He redeems them from slavery. He gives them his law, his commandments. He tells them how to build the tabernacle so that he can dwell among them. And then he makes a covenant with them and brings them into the promised land, gives them a place to be. That's a whole lot that God does. What do you think should be the response of God's people to all of that? Faithfulness. Thank you. You've set me up. Is that what God's people did? Spoiler alert, no, right? The book of Judges shows us that they failed to do that in profound order. It was a disaster. Uh, Judges is one of the most chaotic and dark times in Israel's history. This is what, uh, when they, they did according to what they, what each according to their own hearts, they, they, they didn't obey God, they forgot God, they failed terribly at this. A terrible, terrible time, a cycle of chaos and sin and God has a solution for that. That takes us into uh, the history of Samuel. There it is. Now, First and Second Samuel, and First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles—they're all really one story. Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, right? The scrolls, the division of the scrolls is why we have it in First and Second. But Samuel is a story that has three primary characters. And, and these three primary characters take Israel from this sort of semi-disbanded uh, group of tribes to a unified nation under a king. That's how we're seeing the, 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 the nation come together. We hear firstly about the prophet Samuel. And then we hear about Saul, Israel's first king, who reigns for 40 years. He starts off okay, does not end well. And then we have David. And as I said, this is the point, whoops, of Israel. They, they kind of, this, this story sort of helps us to see the, the, the unifying of these tribes into a singular nation under a singular king, a unified nation. Now, here's the thing about David that's really important. And we see it in Samuel. There's a lot of them, but God makes a covenant with David in Samuel. In 2 Samuel 7 and in 1 Chronicles 17, we see it mimicked here. God promises David a messianic king from his own line. Let me just get a show of hands here, honestly. How many people have read Chronicles? Well, good for you. What do you notice about Chronicles? Sounds a whole lot like Samuel and Kings, right? It's written from the perspective of the priests. There are some key differences, though. One of them is that we don't see any of David's sin in Chronicles. Why is that? 
It's not as if the writers of Chronicles are thinking, well, hopefully no one will go read Samuel and Kings to learn about David's sins, <laughs> particular Samuel. They know that. The point is that there's this messianic prophecy, and they are, from the perspective of the, of the priest, saying, this is the picture of the messianic king. David, without any of his sin. That's the basic gist behind why those, the, there's these differences. These are left out. But in other words, here's what we want to see. David, uh, God promises David that he would establish a king, specifically this messianic king from his line, from the line of David that would rule, this king would rule over the nations, and this is key, and bring fulfillment to the promises made to Abraham. You see the continuity and intentionality of God. Here's what we read. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up, your, uh, raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build my house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So here's what I want you to get. I want to pause here for a moment. How many are familiar with that in Scripture? Any, any, like, you've heard of this? God makes this promise to David that he's going to bring a line after him and keep it, you know, have someone's going to be seated on his throne forever. If you're Israel, if you're coming together here as, as a nation struggling to figure out how they're going to be, this is profoundly good news. This is why I want to kind of pump the brakes here and get you to think about this. This is a remarkable moment in Israel's history because this is the moment where, where God is saying, hey, I'm going to establish you as the nation over the nations. Where my king in the line of David, in all of his perfections, the messianic king will sit on his throne and rule. This is the light unto the nations, the light on the hill. This is as close as it gets to heaven on earth. This is profound. This is the place you want to be in. Somebody say amen to that. Like this is the, the, the image that, that we want to see. This is, this is the picture of joy. The, the kingdom and all of its beauty and majesty and holiness and glory. This is exciting news. But then we get to Kings. And again, the parallel in Chronicles. And what we get in Kings is sort of, we look, at, we look at David, we look at Solomon, and then we look at the, king, the kingdom divided. And the big picture of kings is like this. That we look at all of these kings that come after um, Solomon. So, so you have Saul, you have David, you have Solomon, and then the kingdom's divided. And so we're looking at all these kings, about 40 or so, 20 in the north, about 20 in the south, give or take. And here's what I want you to see. Sadly... Kings demonstrates to us that not a single one of the kings met or fulfilled the messianic promise. Not a one of them. Not one. Now about eight or so kings in the south did a little bit better, but not that much better. But here's the thing that I want you to see in terms of our series here. We want to think about the relationship between the prophets and the kings. In the book of Kings, we have this, this, we kind of go northern kings, southern kings, northern kings, southern kings, and they're interacting with the prophets, particularly Elijah and Elijah. Those are the two main prophets. And they're measuring the kings. They're, they're saying to the kings, this is what you're supposed to do. 
They're foretelling about the, the, the coming exile. Uh, they're, they're, they're foretelling about it. They're foretelling about God's covenant, about his law, about how they're disobeying it. They're reminding them not to forget God. But these are the primary three things that they're measuring the kings by. Did they worship God alone? Did they allow idolatry in Israel? Did they keep God's covenant? These are the primary benchmarks. Not surprisingly, I'm sure for you, you realize they fail in all of them, king after king after king. As I said, there's about eight in the south that do better, but no one does it perfectly. They fail. And that kind of takes us to the place of uh, first kings. That's the lead up to Israel torn. That's the first part of our series. So big picture idea. And as we get into kings, the, the lead up to our text, first kings one through 11, we're looking at the reign of Solomon. Now, here's how the reign of Solomon begins. It begins with an aging David. David is old. He's nearing the end of his life. And, well, he's going to hand over his kingdom to his son. And he does that. In fact, he does it in, in a good way. He takes, he takes Solomon aside and he says to him, be faithful. Be faithful to the Lord. Walk with the Lord. Do it well. But then he says this, um, just FYI, I've got some enemies, and you might want to take care of those enemies, which is code for you should kill those guys, which is what Solomon does. And so Solomon begins his reign with a series of assassinations, not exactly a stellar beginning. Solomon is someone that we've heard before. We know the name. He's profoundly known for his, his great wisdom and his extravagant wealth. And while David was kept from building the temple because he was a warrior, Solomon was not. Solomon was a builder. Solomon loved a good project. He built the temple and spared no expense. It was extravagant. He built a palace for himself and spared no expense. It was extravagant. In fact, one of Solomon's early shortcomings, early failures was in order to accomplish this, he implemented forced labor to accomplish this. And this is an important component uh, for us to remember in, in, the, in the, the, the breaking down, the tearing of the kingdom. He implements forced labor. Keep that in mind. But Solomon was also someone who was uniquely privileged of God. We read about that also in, in 1 Kings in chapter 9. God appears to Solomon not once but twice. We sometimes take that for granted, but for Solomon, God appearing and speaking to him twice is profoundly significant and distinguished in Scripture. He's also privileged because the kingdom is handed to him simply because he's David's son. But when God takes him aside... When he appears to him and speaks to him, here's what he says to him. He says, Solomon, if you walk with me, if you're faithful to me, if you worship me alone, and if you don't allow for idolatry, and if you keep my covenant and my law, then I will establish the kingdom of your father. And there will always be someone on the throne of David. But... If you're disobedient, if you fail, if you turn away, then I will tear the kingdom from you and take it from you. Anyone want to guess how it turned out for Solomon? A man with all of that privilege, all of that wealth, and all of that wisdom 
And sadly, when we come to the end of Solomon's life, we're told that he too failed. In fact, he failed in all three of the ways that the prophets gave those criteria. Solomon didn't worship God alone. He did allow for idolatry. He failed to keep God's covenant. We famously read about Solomon having all of these wives and hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines, which wasn't just the sin in what you would think. It's certainly that, but it's also his divided heart because there's all these different religions that come with all these different political alliances with all these different wives, and he wants them to have the freedom to worship. So different idols set up in the temple, a, a conflated uh, a, a multitude of worship, syncretism we call it. So he allows this idolatry. He himself's not worshiping God alone. He's allowing others to not worship God alone. He's failing to keep God's covenant. And so God says, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. That's exactly what he says to him. In fact, what he says is, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you, but I won't actually take it away from you in your days. I'm going to take it from your son. So Solomon has a son, and his name is Rohoboam. And I don't know how he came up with that name. I'm still wondering that, but okay. So he, so he has the son, and he's going to tear the kingdom from his son. And here's what, Sol, what God does to Solomon. He says, you're gonna, you're, I'm, I'm going to keep the kingdom for you, but I'm going to make your life difficult. And he raises up three adversaries. And I'm going to give you the names. They don't really matter that much, but here's what I want you to see. These three guys are significant. The first two are people that had a not-so-great history with Solomon's father, David. Remember, David's the warrior, and he has lots of military campaigns, and he wipes some of these people out. And some of these, people, these guys fled for their lives and hid. And so when they heard that David was dead, uh, they were like, sure, we'll come back, and we'll create problems for Solomon. Happy to do it. One in the north, one in the south. Way to go. But this guy, Jeroboam, he's different. Jeroboam was a, a skilled uh, and talented guy. He was uh, industrious. And Solomon saw this in him right away. In fact, and this is really important, because he sees that, he takes this guy, Jeroboam, and he says, I'm going to put you in charge of all of my forced labor for my building projects. Now, this is key because that means that this guy, Jeroboam, saw firsthand, up close, the burden and the labor of God's people under Solomon. He saw it up close. He was quite familiar with the struggle that they had. And he's doing this and he's seeing this happening. And one day, Jeroboam encounters a prophet named Ajaha or Ahaja. And this prophet is sporting some new digs. He's got a brand new robe. Now, prophets will speak the word of God verbally. They'll say, thus saith the Lord. But sometimes prophets do things called sign acts, where they display what God's going to do. In this case, that's what this prophet does. He takes Jeroboam and he says, he, he takes his brand new robe and he tears it into 12 pieces, one for each of the tribes. And he says to Jeroboam, take 10, which was a prophetic sign that Jeroboam was going to be in charge of a large portion of the divided kingdom. Tears the robe into the 12 tribes and he says to him, here, take 10. Now, that's a really significant thing because it demonstrates what God's going to do prophetically through this picture. And that kind of takes us to our text here of, of chapter 12. And I want to just give you a quick look at it, and then we'll walk through. I promise we won't be long. But Rehoboam is Solomon's son, and what we're going to read in the text is he becomes king, and then Jeroboam is the spokesman for the people. So he's got this prophecy that he's going to become king of, of the 10 tribes. 
But he's also the spokesman. Remember, Solomon put him in charge. And he didn't have a good relationship with Solomon, as we're going to see, not at all. But he's in charge, so he knows the burden firsthand. And he becomes their spokesperson. And he pleads with them to lighten the burden and says, look, we'll worship. We'll, we'll, we'll be your king. We'll serve you as king. But we want you to lighten the load. And Rehoboam, he gets some counsel and he ignores it and decides to make the burden heavier. And that doesn't fare well. That is the result of the kingdom torn. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to read the verses here a little bit of time. And we'll just see what I've just displayed for you. But let me just begin with a word of prayer as we open up the word of God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time in your word. And thank you for wisdom and insight. May we learn from the kings of your people who turned their back on you and forgot you who were obsessed with their own power. May you instill that in us. May we not forget our own sins and therefore be healed of them and forgiven. Amen. So here's what we see. Rehoboam, he goes to Shechem. For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. So as I said, he's going to be king. And as soon as Jeroboam, remember, he's the representative for the people, the son of Nabat heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. So he fled because he did not have this good relationship with Solomon at all. Then Jeroboam returned from Israel, and they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam. So, so, so Jeroboam comes, he gathers the people, and he goes before the new king to make a plea for the people. So here's what he does. He says, uh, he says, uh, goes before the king. He says, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. And he said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. So, so Rehoboam's saying, go away. Let me, let me get counsel, and then I will give you an answer. Seems like a kingly and wise thing to do. And so Rehoboam gets some counsel. He's a counsel from the old man, the elders who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him this, now get these words. If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them, when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. Here's what they said. Be a servant leader. Serve your people. Now, the messianic king, the king of kings, what did he come to do? Serve, right? Not to be served, but to serve and give himself, give his life as a ransom. Be a servant leader, Rehoboam. Be a good king, a benevolent king in light of the model of what God has chosen for you to be. And Rehoboam doesn't do that. Oh, great shock there. He abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men, his friends who had grown up with him and stood before him. That's what he chose to do. He said to them, what do you advise that we answer the people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young man who had grown up with him said to him, thus you shall speak to this people who say to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thigh. And now, whereas my father laid a heavy yoke, Laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. 
In other words, the young friends of Rehoboam said, no, 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 no. Oh, they're going to complain? Let's make it worse. I'll make it even harder for them. I'm going to make it worse for them, and, and don't forget your friends when you have all that power. And by the way, I want you to see a little something. Uh, Solomon did this too, and Rehoboam's doing this with this forced labor, this heavy burden. They're building projects. They're trying to increase the labor. What does that look like? When we think of Pharaoh, somebody nailed it right there. Pharaoh, right? Not the Messianic king, quite the opposite. It's more like Pharaoh. We're gonna, you, you were disciplined with this, but we're going to discipline you with scorpions. As you might imagine, that didn't go well. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Roboam on the third day. They came back as they were requested to do. Go away for three days. I'm going to get some counsel, then come back. They come back. They come together on the third day, and the king answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel that the elders, the old men, had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was, and get this, a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill the word which the Lord spoke by Ahijah, the, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nahab. That is, that he might fulfill the prophecy of the, the robe torn in 12 pieces. So God brings the prophecy, and now he's bringing fulfillment of that prophecy. Here is the kingdom divided. They... It doesn't work out. So here's what we read. When Israel heard that, so here's what the king speaks harshly to them, says, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to make your burden heavier. And they say to them, well, what portion do we have with the house of David? We have no inheritance here. To your tents, O Israel, we read. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah in the south. Then King Rehoboam, now get this, this is key, right? King Rehoboam sent Adoram, the name doesn't matter, but he's the taskmaster. So he said, well, I'm going to make your burden even harder. My dad uh, disciplined you with whips. I'm going to discipline you with, with scorpions. He sends his taskmaster to the, to the forced labor, over the forced labor. And what do they do? All Israel stoned him to death with stones. They rebel against him. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. He thought he was going to go in there and institute his even harsher labor and even harsher discipline, and they rebelled against him. And so he flees back to Jerusalem. We're seeing the nation torn apart here. So Israel had, had been, has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. That's when this is written. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, the spokesman, remember, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. So the prophecy is fulfilled here of the, of the robe being torn into 12 pieces. Jeroboam, you take 10. Here it's fulfilled. They make him king. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. And then lastly, we read this. Rehoboam wasn't done. He comes to Jerusalem. He assembles all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. So remember, 12, uh, 10 in the north and Judah and Benjamin in the south. 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Oh, you're going to rebel against me? Well, I'm going to gather an army and fight against you to reunite the nation. That's his plan. Oh, you don't like that? Well, I'm, I'm going to destroy you then. 
But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people, uh, the people of Israel. Every, every man returned to his home, for this thing is from me. Prophecy given, action taken, fulfillment comes. The nation, because of the disobedience of the king, is torn. That is the first part of the context that we think about when we think about what the, who the prophets are speaking to and the context into which they are speaking. This is what brings the nation to be a divided nation. And it is by the sovereign will of God. He prophesies it and, he, and it comes to pass. And he says, this thing is going to happen. So, so he's going to go and fight and destroy him. And God says, no, this is my doing. And so he, he realized that. And this is where we're going to leave off. But here's what I want you to see when you're thinking contextually. The, the idea here is that we remember that the, 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 the sins of the kings in forgetting God is profound. Let me just go back over it again just so you see it sort of uh, rehearsed. Rehoboam becomes king. Jeroboam, the spokesman for the people. And Rehoboam ignores the sound counsel. The, the, the elders give him good counsel. Be a servant leader. He ignores that. He listens to his friends and, and tries to have, uh, make a heavier burden on him. That backfires terribly. And then the kingdom is torn. So let me just put these quotations back up here again. Those who cannot remember their pastor can then to repeat it and to forget our sins may be an even greater sin than to commit them. Because what is forgotten cannot be healed, and that which cannot be healed easily becomes the cause of greater evil. For the prophets to remember God was central. The message of remembering God for the prophets was central to their message. It was at the very heart of their message. Because forgetting God was nothing short of detrimental to the kings and all of the people. And so the question is, how important is it to us? Do we not see that forgetting God, which is what we are so easily prone to do, is detrimental to us? We're about to come to the table to partake in communion. And when we do that, we do that because Jesus tells us what? Do this, partake of this table, what? In remembrance of me. And so what I want you to see here is remembrance is not merely a mental exercise to bring something to mind. There's a worship component to remembering God. When we read scripture, we don't read simply, scripture simply to remember verses or to recite them, but ultimately to remember God. When we pray, it's because we remember our God. Prayer is an evidence of a belief in God and remembrance of who he is. When we ask forgiveness of God, we do it because we remember that he is holy and we are not. Remembering God with intention and with action is central to our walk as Christians. And remembering our history, that our people were torn apart because they forgot God, is in part why we have that history. My hope for you and prayer for you is that it's never boring, but instead acts as a jarring reminder to walk faithfully with God, to enjoy the blessings of God and enjoy the fellowship with him and his people may contribute to our own moral understanding and cultivating us our own spiritual identity as a people who are not our own, but belong fully 
to him. Amen? Let me pray as we transition to our time in the table. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word as we do each week. Lord, we thank you for the time in and under your word when you do your work in it, making us more like your son. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.